Well, good afternoon and uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. Uh, it is good to be with you this evening, and I really mean that. Many of you know that the, uh, the night before Thanksgiving, that Wednesday evening, I, I called a doctor friend of mine who attends the church because my stomach had been bothering me for about four days. Uh, it, and also, the, my stomach was kind of big. Um, I, I, I looked and felt like I imagine it feels to be pregnant. Now, I don't, I don't want to suggest I know what that's like, but I was, I was nauseous. Uh, the Sunday before, which is like four days earlier, my wife even commented, your stomach looks so big, and I had to agree. You know, it's kind of big. And, uh, and I just didn't feel good. And so after about four days of that, I finally asked the doctor, Could you, can you fit me in? And he said, sure, come on by. And he took a, a few tests, and he concluded that I, I most likely had appendicitis. And so he called a surgeon who also attends the church here, and the surgeon was willing to come on over and check me out. And the next thing you knew, uh, I was putting on one of those ugly, immodest hospital gowns. I mean, could they really come up with anything worse than that hospital gown? Just ties in the back. It's like, it's just horrible. And I'm lying down there, and the plan was to, to laparoscopically remove my appendix. And so they made the incisions and, and went in there to do that, and what they saw shocked everybody. Um, they ended up having to open me up. The appendix, my appendix, had literally died and turned gangrene. And it was a mess in there. I asked the doctor this week, I did a follow-up um, visit this week, and I said, was it really that bad? And there was no hesitation. It was bad. I guess it was also colorful. Purple, green, red, black. And things were sticking together. And my, uh, some of the organs were stopping to work, stop working. And so they did surgery. And, um, and then the doctor did an amazing job and, and fixed it and cleaned it up. But it's, I've got a long, kind of a long way to go. I've been told it's going to be another month before I feel back to normal, but it was a really uh, messy ordeal. The doctor said many times people die from this. I don't know what would have happened it, had I waited a couple days more to go in, but it was, it, it was a, a mess in there, and I was really in trouble. So I want to say thank you, though, for your prayers. Many of you I know have been praying. Uh, many of you have been supporting our family in some other ways, meals and things. Thank you for the staff who have stepped up to the plate and, and helped out in the meantime. And, and thank you for the uh, second and third graders. You made cards for me, get well cards, and I got a big stack of them, and that was very encouraging as well. And so I appreciate it. But the whole experience was really hard. For three days, I was in pain like I, I didn't think a person could endure. Eventually ended up getting a nasogastric thing down my nose and throat. It was horrible. And I had a clock in front of me and I just watched it tick. Minutes, hours, days. But I'm grateful for the, the healing and for the surgeons and everything as well. Uh, my experience though relates a little bit to what I want to talk about tonight. One of the thoughts that occurred to me through this whole incident was how fragile we are as people. It's just remarkable how fragile we are in our humanity. Moses talked about this in Psalm 90 in verse 5. He said, people are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows. By evening it withers and dries up. 
Elsewhere, people are described as being like a flower that blooms when the sun comes out, but then as the, the heat of the day goes on, it begins to wither and it ends up dying, or we're described as being like a vapor that appears for a short while and then is gone. Such is the fragility of humanity. Now, where this touches our story is that I've been thinking a lot about the fact that Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who made everything you see, chose to enter this world in the fragility of humanity. He chose for 33 years to limit himself to a human body. He chose during those 33 years not to exercise his divine rights or prerogative or his power. In the 33 years he walked the earth, he worked, walked the earth as a man. The miracles he performed were at his Father's leading and at the power of the Holy Spirit, but he was fully man when he walked this earth. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at that, to realize that the creator of the universe should choose to confine himself for 33 years to such a, a frail humanity. And then on top of that, even more remarkable to me, is that he entered the world as a fragile baby. I mean, you think about it for a moment, but what is more fragile than a baby? I mean, a human baby is more fragile than even other animal babies. I mean, you, you see an animal being born and it hops off and says, bye mom. I mean, some of these animals are like that. They're just born and they're just gone, wobbling away and bye. A baby's born and it's like this. It's like, you know, do something, you know. Feed me, change my diaper completely dependent on other people, such as the, the helplessness of a baby. And you realize that again, Jesus entered this world to be utterly reliant upon other people. He had to learn how to walk. And he learned how to fall too. And he did cry regardless of what the one Christmas carol says, you know, no crying he makes. No, Jesus cried. He was just like we are. Philip Yancey describes the incarnation this way, the God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard. This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for shelter food and love. As Pastor Josh mentioned last week, Joseph and Mary, the parents of Jesus, were teenagers. Now you think about that for a moment, entrusted with the creator of the universe. And this was their firstborn son, which I think is kind of significant. I don't know if this is true or not, but I think I made more mistakes with my firstborn than the others. You know, the firstborn is like practice. And, and you got Mary and Joseph, and they're raising this, this baby and entrusted with this baby. It's all remarkable, and it raises the question, why? Why didn't Jesus not just enter the world as a full-grown man? He could still maybe go to the cross and die for the sin of the world. Why did he, why did he come as a baby, so helpless, so needy, and under these circumstances? I think the main answer is this that Jesus had to go the distance in order to save us. He had to go the distance from the beginning to the end in order to save us, save, save humanity from the penalty of what we've done wrong. And therefore, I agree with Tim Keller who wrote, the incarnation is the universe sundering, history altering, life transforming, paradigm shattering event 
of history. But I think because Jesus went about it this way, there are some other things that are true that apply to our lives. I'm incredibly grateful that Jesus went the distance for us, that he didn't skip any of the parts. He entered the world as a baby and lived a sinless life and eventually went to a cross and actually died and was buried and raised again and ended up in heaven. I'm so glad that he went through the, all of this for us. Why? Well, I think three things are true because of it. One is it means Jesus can relate to our pain and suffering. He did not skip the hard parts. Jesus knows what it's like to feel hunger and thirst and to be tired and to be misunderstood. He's felt the, the sting of, of being betrayed by his friends and he knows what it's like to be tempted to the point where you just wanna give in but he said no. He understands everything that we've gone through and therefore he's able to relate to the things you and I are going through. I love that about Jesus, he knows what it's like. One of the benefits of what I went through, I don't wanna go through it again, but one of the benefits was that I understood for the first time what pain is like for days. I've visited people in the hospital before that were in pain and I've tried to relate to what they were going through, but to be honest with you, up to this point, perhaps the greatest pain I felt was when I was 12 and had my tonsils out. And I don't even remember that except swallowing flavored ice chips. But after what I went through, I know pain. It changes things. You know, if you're going through something hard, you kind of want somebody to, to understand it, to, to be able to sympathize with the things you're going through. He says, I know exactly what that's like, and that's where Jesus is. He knows what it's like. In Hebrews 2.18, we read, for since he himself was tested or t went through trials and has suffered, he's able to help those who are tested because he's gone through it in a very practical sense, he's able to help you and me when we go through the same things. He says, I know exactly what that's like. I can help you. A Couple chapters later in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, the writer of Hebrews wrote, for we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Isn't that what we want if we're going through a hard time? Someone that can actually sympathize? come alongside and enter into it and say, I know what it's like. We do not have someone who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tested in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, by way of application, the author says, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time because he can sympathize with what you and I have gone through. Go to him. Find the grace you need. I found myself calling out to Christ. I need you. I cannot do this apart from you. That's what he wants us to do. But in addition to the fact that Jesus can sympathize with the pain and suffering, the second thing is true, he's able to model how to live. He gave us an example to follow again because he went the distance. Now, we don't know what it was like when Jesus was four or five. Some people have written some fanciful stories about what it would be like when Jesus was four or five, you know, performing some little miracle to impress his friends or something like that. We don't know what it was like when he was young, but we do know what it was like when he was 12. We know that when Jesus was 12 years old, he obeyed his parents. 
He viewed that this, your mom and you're my dad and I'm gonna put myself under you. That's, that's what Jesus did when he was 12. But other things were true of Jesus when he was 12, like he had a close relationship with God. When Jesus wandered off at one point when they were in Jerusalem and Jesus was in the temple, it's mom Mary finally found him and said, well, what are you doing? And Jesus said, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? At the age of 12, he was saying, don't you realize I, I'm just doing what my, my God wants me to do? In addition to that, he, he knew the Bible. He was in a discussion with the religious leaders. That would have been so fun to watch as they... They were discussing with a 12-year-old and he was, he was challenging them and, and exposing things and revealing the Word of God. Now, the reason I think this is important is that I think sometimes when we're young, like when we're 12 or 13 or 14, we think, well, when I am an adult, I'll get to know God. When I'm an adult, I'll start reading my Bible. When I'm an adult, I'll develop my relationship with God. I'll start doing what I should do. I just want to encourage you that, that, that those things can be started now. My relationship with God, I think, developed mostly when I was 14. Developed a relationship with Him based on some things I was facing. Began to read my Bible every day, began to pray. Those foundations have impacted my life. Of course, Jesus grew up, and His example is seen throughout the Gospels. And so you see how Jesus treated people. You see how he loved people that were unlovable, how he defended people that were attacked by others. We see how he loved people. We see he was even vulnerable. He was so humble and meek when he was with people, even as we're supposed to be with other people, humble and meek and, and vulnerable. But he also was not afraid to challenge things when he saw me. He had the courage to look right at somebody and say, you're wrong about this. Go learn what this means. Have mercy, have compassion. Go learn what this means. And he's talking to religious leaders. And so I encourage you because of the example of Jesus to learn from his example, from the gospels, because we're called to be followers of Jesus. And he went the distance so that we could learn what it's like from the beginning to the end, even how to die. From the cross to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But the last benefit of Jesus going the distance, and to me this is the most important one, is that he was qualified to be our deliverer, our savior from the penalty of our sin. We have got a problem. And oftentimes we don't realize we have a problem. The problem is this little thing called sin. It just means to miss the mark. You know, sin is one of those religious terms, but it just means to miss the mark. We've missed the mark with God. We've missed the mark with other people. We've missed the mark even with our own standards. Even with what we say I'm gonna do, we don't do sometimes, right? We sin in many ways with our words, our thoughts, and our deeds, and the problem is worse than we think it is. Most people admit, I know I sin, they just don't see themselves as sinful. They don't realize that this is what disqualifies us from even going to heaven unless something changes, because God is perfect and heaven is a perfect place. We're not qualified to go there unless something changes which is why Jesus came into this world. I went four days with a painful stomach condition and I had determined that I got this. I figured, you know, I, I can solve this, you know, just take something for my stomach. Everything will be fine. I had no clue my condition. I had no idea how serious it was. And I think that's how it is with most people. 
when it comes to our sin. Jesus is the one who said, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, doctor, it's those who are sick, but it requires our humility to recognize our condition and to recognize this is not something that we can fix. We can't solve it. We can't even stop sinning if we wanted to, right? We're incapable, and our sin problem is fatal. You know, the wages of sin is death, Paul wrote. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. And because we were incapable of getting right with God through our own effort or cleaning up ourselves or even doing good, none of these things remove the fact we're sinners. Jesus entered the world and he had to go the distance. He had to enter this world as a baby. He had to live a completely sinless life so that he could offer himself in our place to take upon himself the judgment we deserved. John Calvin put it this way, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us, since it was not in our power to ascend to him. Hence, it was necessary for the Son of God to become for us Emmanuel, that is God with us. What if someone who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, could offer himself up in our place for what we did wrong? What if he could become for us the representative of all humanity? You see, the reason we're all stuck in this thing called sin is because our representative, a guy named Adam, blew it. He represented all of us and we're all in the same boat. And then Jesus in the New Testament is called the second Adam. What if someone could come in and get it right this time and offer himself to die in our place and for our sin? Hebrews 2.17, we read, Therefore he had to be like his brothers, that's you and me, had to become like us in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in his service to God. What does a high priest do? It connects people with God. He had to become like us in every way so that he could connect us with God. And how did he do it? It says he was made a propitiation for our sins. That word, big theological word, it means to satisfy the wrath of God against the sin of the world. That's what Jesus did for us. My study Bible puts it this way, propitiation means the removal of divine wrath. Jesus' death is the means that turns God's wrath away from the sinner. He took it for us so that God could extend forgiveness to us. And that's why he's the only solution. And it's why Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2, 5, he said, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself, human. He's the only one that could bridge the gap, the only one that was both God and man that could make it possible for our relationship with God to be restored. But how do we receive that forgiveness? And how do we even enter into this relationship where we can experience a Christ who sympathizes with our weaknesses? And how do we even learn from his example? Well, I want to talk about that very briefly in a moment, but first we're going to sing a song for you. It's called, Here Comes Heaven. Let me read some of the words of the song. Angels, let your song begin. Here comes heaven. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Here comes heaven. Sinner, wait no more. Love has broken the silence. Come, let us adore. The Savior is with us. Now behold his glory, glory in the highest. All the earth rejoice, for Christ is born. Over all who mourn breaks the dawn of salvation. Darkness reigns no more, for Jesus is greater. He is greater.
children weep no more Hope is on the horizon Weary world, behold Your promised Messiah Angels let your song begin
thoughts occurred to me about the second or third day as I was lying in the hospital bed was that these doctors and nurses had literally saved my life. I mean, it just kind of, just kind of hit me. They saved my life. And that produced in me just a sense of just profound gratitude, but it did require a recognition first that I had a problem and secondly, the humility to say, fix it to trust someone to do it for me. I think the same is true when it comes to approaching Jesus. There's a certain humility that's required for us that when we're going through a difficult time to be able to reach to Jesus and say, I need you, to turn to him or to follow his example. We live in a world where we really need heroes and there's no greater hero than Jesus, but it takes humility to say, I'll follow his example but especially to turn to Jesus Christ to be our savior, our deliverer. That requires a certain amount of humility. And I think this is why the Christmas story is so humble. I mean, have you ever thought about it before? Everything about this story is almost ridiculously humble. It starts with a little baby. And he's born to a young couple that, well, again, was in their teenage years. And they were not a wealthy family. They were very poor. They couldn't even offer the, the sacrifice of a lamb that was required. They, they could only offer a couple birds because they didn't have much. And Jesus was not born in a palace, which is what it, he deserved. No, he was born in a barn or more likely a cave. When I was in Israel, I noticed some, some caves. I took a picture of one. And it's likely a picture of what Joseph and Mary were facing. This is a cave that's used in Israel to this day by shepherds. Most of the sheep are out in the field, but the cave is reserved for the ones that are weak and sick. And Joseph and Mary probably had their baby in a cave such as that. And you, you wonder why. Why were the first visitors that came to see this child not the religious or political elite? Why was it a group of shepherds in their field that were looked down upon by society? Those are the ones who looked into the face of that baby Jesus. And a little later when some visitors came from afar, they, it says they came to, to visit him who's the king of the Jews, but they themselves were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. Again, ones that were despised by the Jewish nation. And yet they saw the face of Jesus. What does it all communicate? Well, God came in such a humble way and maybe that reveals how we have to approach him. Humility to see our need. I love what John, one of his closest friends wrote in John 1, 11 and 12. He wrote the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, including us. He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, to those who would put their trust in him. The only requirement for us to receive that forgiveness of sins is to put our trust in Jesus who died in our place and for our sin. That's why he came into this world. He would take upon himself the judgment you and I deserve so that God could declare us not guilty, but it requires us putting our trust in him, humbly saying, I have a problem, I need a savior, and reaching to Jesus who died in our place and for our sin. And his resurrection proved that God accepted the payment on our behalf. 
Now, Adam's going to come out here in a moment, and we're going to do Silent Night as we do every time. But before we do, I'd like us to bow our heads. And I just want to offer a prayer of invitation for you tonight. I just want to encourage you. Maybe some of you tonight have not put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior. I want to give you an opportunity to do so. It's really not the words of the prayer. It's the faith behind it. A receiving of Jesus, as I just read in John 1 there, as many as receive him, to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become his children. So I encourage you to pray something like this in your own heart to God. Dear God, I know I've blown it. I know I sin. I can't fix it. I need a savior. I need a deliverer. And I do believe that you sent your son Jesus to come into this world, to live a sinless life, so that he might be qualified to die in my place and for my sin. And then he rose again from the dead, proving you accepted his payment on my behalf. And so today I want to put my trust in Jesus. Today I want to receive him as my savior. Today I want to claim that promise in John where you said whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So I come to you in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of my sin and because of what Jesus did for me. Amen.